Welcome to the Republican Professor this afternoon. We have an honored guest, retired law enforcement, David McCreary. Thank you, David, for being here. Oh, thank you for the invitation. David, uh, did I say your first name right, David? Yes, my, okay. I, I go by David. My legal name is John David. I was cursed from birth because my parents named me John, but immediately started calling me by my middle name, which caused all kinds of problems throughout my entire adult life, both as a child, as an adult. <laughs> so but that's got, just the way it is. You got a double doozy for biblical names. You got John, yeah. David, yeah, and then McCreary. Is that a biblical name too? Somewhere in like First Kings? Doubt it. Very serious. Yeah, I don't think so. It's not like a Hittite name or something. (laughs) Well, thanks for coming on. Um, I think we got connected on uh, social media through your wife, uh, Melissa. Yes. And um, I knew that you were uh, retired law enforcement. I know medically retired, but still 23 years. It's pretty good. And I've been wanting to have law enforcement on, and you also have some ministry experience and a heart for ministry as well. So we'd we love to hear all about Mr. David McCreary. So sure, we're happy, we're happy you're here, and I Thank love you. that background too. Those books and stuff. Yeah. So, uh, what are you involved with now that you're retired from law enforcement? We'll, well get to your law enforcement here soon. Yeah. Um... 2007, 2008, just a, just a number of, of different injuries that uh, I had sustained on the job over the years kind of caught up with me. And, um, and when you're, when you're in that career and you find, when they find that you can't chase 17 year old kids over fences anymore, um, eventually they give you your pink slip. And um, I was not, I was not devastated that I had to separate from the career. It was, uh, I was around 47, uh, 48 when that happened. And my goal was to leave at 50 because it is, a, it, it, for the most part, if you're, if you're involved in, in the enforcement end of law enforcement, it's very much a young man's game. And uh, uh, I, I hated seeing guys in their mid fifties and trying to push a patrol car around you know, up to 60 years old because they're trying to max out their retirement. It just wasn't, it's just not the right fit, especially in this day and age in the environment where I work that was, was very active. Um, I wanted to leave early and go on, move on to the next half of my life, whatever that would be. That came a little bit early. Unfortunately, it came without uh, a little bit unexpectedly, so I didn't have a plan in place, and it, and it coincided with the beginning of the Great Recession in 2007-2008. So, uh, you know, we went through some lean years as I was trying to figure out where a guy with my skill set fit in. Um, we eventually left California, came out to Texas. I found, uh, I found a job for a while that was very rewarding, but it was actually the hardest job I've ever had in my life. I was a high school teacher at a oh. private Christian school for two years, teaching all the social studies curriculums for freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors. And um, it, was, it was rough. I got it. The last fell into my lap, the last minute in the entire first year there. 
I lived one day ahead of all my students in each class. I would go home with four textbooks under my arm wow. and I would read the next day's lesson one day in advance. And, uh, oh my gosh, it was, uh, it was, that was, literally, that was harder than being a police officer. That was harder than being a cop. <laughs> I was unprepared for that, but it was really rewarding though, working with the kids. I got it. I got to admit that. Mm. Um, I fell into um, a job. What town, what town was that in? That was in a small little central Texas town of Belleville. Um, at about, it was the county seat and it was a population of about 3,000. Wow. So uh, now I grew up in Kansas, in rural Kansas, in small little towns like that. So for me, it felt like, oh, it was like old home week, you know, I, so reminded me of my youth. Uh, my poor wife was out here. We were on, you know, f- five or 10 acres out in the country. And she was kind of like Ava Gabor on green acres. Uh, it just wasn't a good fit for her. So we eventually have gravitated. We live in College Station now, which is big, big college town, Texas A&M. And uh, it's, it's the right mix of smaller city, but with all the amenities, we, we're, we're, yeah. we're happy where we're at now. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually work in the offshore oil industry now, um, kind of through the back door, um, got a chance to get into that field as a, as a safety advisor. So I work a month out in the Gulf of Mexico on an oil rig, and then um, I oh, get an wow. extended weekend for that lasts four weeks long when I, when I get to come home. Wow. What's uh what's your what are your hours like when you're out on the oil rig? And what's um, your situation? What's your setup? Yeah, on paper I work 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, but I'm <laughs> the only safety advisor out there. So if anything bad happens during the night, I always get a call and woke up. I'm on call all the time. Um and you know, we'll show up on day one and and you just work for 28 days. Um, it's seven days a week four weeks in a row, you don't get a day off. It's just, you just, you just work, eat and sleep. Sounds like being deployed when I was in the Navy. Very much. Yeah. Very 12 much hour like that. watches. So. Yeah. And that's interesting. And the, uh, so, the rigs are set up very much like a Naval ship. You do know, you share because, a room with somebody or you have a cot somewhere? Where, how, how do you get any sleep? One perk for me, my position is, uh, is that I have a room to myself. Ah, um, so for you, you must be and, special. Yeah. For your background, <laughs> it, it's probably more like an officer's billet. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Even not, not all, not even all officers get their own room. Yeah. So that's a, that's a nice up. perk. Um, what's your official I, title? Is it, is it uh, state safety? Is it safety advisor? Um, environmental health and safety ehs basically is is uh my job on the rig is to oversee uh build relationships with all the people at all the different levels and um and not not go hit them overhead with the safety manual is is just have conversations and and uh, help through the strength of the relationship keep keeping them steered into the straight and narrow uh, in terms of, you know, protocols and regulations, paperwork, 
job safety analysis, permits to work. It's just there's a there's a lot of red tape that goes on out there on oil rigs, especially after the 2010, you know, Deepwater Horizon you yeah. know, incident. Oh, yeah. Then that got magnified even more. Um, so now are you a, is that a W2 or are you a 1099? That's you, the W2 for me. You, there oh, are people so you that, are an employee. that do that on contract, but yeah, I'm an, I'm an employee of the company that I work for. Oh, that's good. I think. Great. That's a long, uh, long day. Uh, what's your day typically start with? Do you uh, work meeting. out? Do you um, work out, you I, have coffee, you have, you have breakfast. How do you, how do you get your food? <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll have a, they'll have a galley very much like being on a ship and a, a catering crew stewards. Um, the food's not bad. Um, you don't have, uh, you don't, you just don't have control over all your choices, but there'll be a decent selection and, um, and the food isn't terrible um, as, as it goes out there in the Navy or on, or in, in other companies in the, in the oil industry. You know, we, we get a lot of third parties involved, uh, you know, come on to the, to the rig, they're contracted to do sp special jobs for the client. And um, the feedback we typically get is, is our, our rig has some of the better food that they have experienced offshore. So I'm thankful for that. Nice. Are you a lot, are you able to work out? Is there a little area that you can do? They have, something? they have a couple of gyms. Yes. So we can, and, and uh, uh, I'm trying to imagine what is, what it looks like. Like, yeah, there's not a whole lot of recreational activities off when you're off duty or you're when you're off tower they call it in the oil industry but um there is tvs in the rooms and they have a, a little bit of a selection uh you get a little bit of local programming um the local networks and then a few movie channels that they're hit and miss it just depends on your taste if they have anything that you're interested in on any given night but and what the rig is doing, is it actively bringing up oil from the ocean floor? Yeah, that's a good question. The, the company that I work for is in the well intervention business. So um, our, our rigs get contracted by an oil company, Shell, Chevron, BP, you know, any of those majors, but also some of the smaller mom and pops oil companies that nobody's ever heard of before. Hmm. And we go over existing wells that have been in production for a number of years. And we do either one of two things, either over the course of the last 10 or 15 years, the quality and quantity of the pro hydrocarbon product that they're, that they're extracting has reduced because of water intrusion, sand intrusion, you know, any number of things that can that degrade the quality of, of the oil or the hydrocarbons they're getting or the well has completely run its course and, 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 and is done. Uh, the, the, it's no longer economically feasible to extract anything else out of this particular well. In those cases, we'll do what they call a plug and abandonment. And we'll go in, they'll go in and set several um, cement plugs. Uh, it's not cement like you would find on a, on a, on a sidewalk or a street in, you know, in town, but it's, similar in nature it, it, it goes in kind of viscous and fluid thick muddish like and then hardens 
um, and they have to set those by regu- by by law. They have to set those at different levels in the well, and then cap the top, remove the the uh, well head from the uh, ocean floor, and leave when when the well goes is actually put to bed permanently. We're supposed to leave the floor as close to what it was like before um, the well was uh, was was uh, was dug in the first place. So we'll wow. do plug-in abandonments. But the other things that that we'll do on active wells is they will they will open up the well, match pressure, and then they'll they'll run in with all kinds of various different tools in the equivalent of like a plumber's job. We are a subsea plumber. We go in, we we clear pipes, we clean out clogs. Um, they may they may go in and and perforate at a different level at the well because some of these wells we can operate in ten thousand feet of water. So the wellhead is over you know getting close to two miles below the surface of the water, and then sometimes the well itself will be dug three, five, six miles down into the earth. It's amazing that with the technology that they can do way over my head. Um, so they operate at really extreme depths, which means Crazy. there's a lot of pressure. So yeah. when you open up the well, you got to match pressure from the top coming down so that you don't have a blowout so that the well right. doesn't just everything come up to the top. And then they'll send tools down in there and do different kinds sometimes they'll do acid washing sometimes wow literally with roto rooter like things that just clear out stuff they'll remove sand and sediment um your rig what what's the depth of the water for your rig so that's going to vary uh depending on because we move from well to well oh Um, i see we'll be on a well we'll be on one one well for is it the same rig that moves? You yes. move the rig around? Yeah, yeah. our rig is, a, is actually a boat. It's a ship. It, from the outside, it's square. It looks mm. like a platform that's, mm. that you, th- you'd, you would think was connected to the seafloor. But it sits on two big, huge pontoons under the surface with eight thrusters, you know, tor- uh, propellers that are you know, the size of your ceiling. And, um, and they all rotate to keep us stable when we're latched up or move all, you know, in parallel direction to push us through the water when we're in transit. That's amazing. Yeah. So I I, I didn't know they dug so far deep below the surface. It's, it's mind boggling. It's yeah. So you're talking about seven miles down from where you're at. Yeah. I mean, don't quote me on it because it's not my area of expertise, but sometimes the well head can be as, you know, the surface of the, the ocean floor is well over a mile below the surface. And then the well itself is dug multiple miles deep. So it's, yeah. Have you ever, have they ever dug so far down and then a guy from China came up? <laughs> not to my knowledge, but, but it's crazy what they bring what some did. oil with you. Yeah, the technology wow, is really crazy. mind-boggling. That's amazing. Um, I, I don't even know what to ask. It sounds like a kind of a lot to know. How did you get all that training to know all that stuff? 
Yeah, I, I, I came into it through the back door um, after those, those first two years in Texas when I was teaching, uh, teaching school. Um, a friend of mine, a family friend that uh, moved out here from California with us, he had a background in kind of an environmental safety, um, and he got tied up with uh, a job helping with the uh, BP oil spill cleanup that went on for years after that incident. So he actually moved, he had to move into Louisiana. His role in that was to, to clean out these ships that came in that were trying to recover oil off the surface of the water. And they would store them in these big, huge tanks and those tanks would have to be cleaned out uh, before they sent the ship back out. And he was involved in that process and did that for about a year until until that whole cleanup effort started to wane down and um, he needed to get, and he was living full time out there. His wife and family were out here with us and it was time for them to get reunited. He needed to come home. And um, we found him a job because of his experience in, in safety and in environmental stuff, working for a, a training company that really kind of, uh, services the the industrial world in general but has a lot of focus in the in the oil business either onshore or offshore uh, a lot of the safety classes that are required um, are taught there and he worked there for about a year and uh, and he came to me one day and said man you should come you should come work for you know with me at this place um, they would hire you in a minute. In my law enforcement career, I was involved with a lot of training. I was a police academy instructor and I did a lot of training in-house, did training at the regional level on a lot of different subject matters. So I was used to being in front of an audience and presenting material. And he said, they'd hire you in a minute. And I kept telling him, I don't know anything about the oil industry. I don't know anything about you know industrial safety. And they said, they'll teach you everything you need to know. They just oh, that's need a good, that's a who, good deal. <laughs> they just need somebody who can operate this PowerPoint and speak oh. intelligently to a crowd and administer a test. So, so in other words, master the material and then say it back exactly correctly. Yes. No messes up, no messing up, but in a way where they can understand you and it's on them to master it on their end. And then yeah. you examine them. Yeah. Yeah. So and try not to offend anybody. That and that sometimes with, hard. with dumb jokes. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's sometimes hard. I I I inadvertently offended a few, but it just kind of goes with the territory. Anyway, I I started working for this company. I became their lead Bozia instructor, and that's an acronym that stands for Basic Offshore Safety and Induction Training. Uh, it's a three-day course. Uh, Can you give that, me the acronym again? What is it? B Bozia. Uh, B O B O S I E T offshore safety um or an induction training. I think I, I, I okay. may be I may be messing it up slightly, but okay. um there's a there's a there's a an organization called OPEDO which started in the North Sea that uh, after one of their big um, 
oil rig disasters back in, in the 1980s, 160, 160 plus men on one oil rig all died in a big explosion fire. Um, and uh, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Uh, it was a lot. And um, this particular training That's course does t- it, it tries to do two things, accomplish two things: is prepare someone for what offshore oil, you know, what offshore life is going to be like, kind of the do's and don'ts, what to expect, how to function effectively in this environment. And they gave you the helicopter emergency training that it's required because most everybody gets out to rig via helicopter shuttle. And you have to go through, you have to go through this training that will help you egress out of the helicopter if it crashes in the water and then inverts and the cabin fills with water. They do this in the military all the time with yeah. pilots. You know, I, had to, I had to go through that training. Yes. Yeah, so you're strapped, you're four-pointed, strapped into a seat. You got a window right here, an aisle, people all around, and you're going to hit helicopter being so top-heavy. It doesn't matter. Eventually, either right away or shortly thereafter, especially if there's any kind of sea state going on, the helicopter is going to capsize. And the interior compartment's going to flood with water. And you have to be able to um, eject your emergency exit, which is your window, release your seatbelt, keep keep yourself grounded. Because if yeah. you free float. Yeah, you're upside down. It, you're upside down. And if you're, you're free down. floating in the cabin, you got to swim you're, down. You're pretty screwed. You got to swim where your water, your legs work are. Work your way to the windowsill, pull yourself yeah. out, and then it's you got to remember that up is actually down. That's right. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so, the first twi- the first two times I did that dunker, I think we called it the dunker at NAS Pensacola Naval Air Station Pensacola. I went through air air crewman camp. I was an air crewman in the Navy, and I failed. <laughs> I think I was like the last guy that had to do it the third time. It was kind of embarrassing. I was like, everybody was watching me. You know, it's this huge pool and everybody's on the side of the pool watching me. Yes. And I'm like in a flight suit, you know, you're in a flight suit and which also sucks because your boots fill up with water. Yeah, it's a little disorienting, and the water goes in your nose. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just, just, oh, yeah. And and I, I kept thinking, okay. My feet are where up is. My feet are where up is. <laughs> so go toward that. Finally, yeah. I figured it out. Yeah. So so anyway, did uh, you go through that? Where'd you Where'd you go oh, through yeah. that training? Yeah, I. They taught me in house. I had to go through as a student first, and then I mentored under uh, their lead instructor for about three months, and then he left, and I took over as lead instructor. Where was that located at? Is that in Texas? That, that was in Texas. Yeah. That okay. was in the, the, it was a little mom and pops training company um, that was based out of Louisiana, but they got bought out by a huge Norwegian safety country, uh, safety company called Falk Services or Falk Safety Services. Falk has now 
been bought out by another Norwegian training company and they're now rely on new tech. It, I think they're just shuffling tax money around um, but with all these buyouts, but, but uh, we would have to do the helicopter survival. And we had a mock helicopter and we would dunk it in the water, flip it upside down. We'd have two in a big pool, right? Uh, yeah. In a, big, in a big pool, big, big tank. pool. Yeah. Yep, and we'd have two scuba divers in the water, two instructors inside the, the simulator, and each of us was responsible for two people. And our job was just to make sure they got out. And the, the funny thing about this, I, I would tell this story all the time, and it's true. It's not an exaggeration. I got in more knockdown drag out fights inside that helicopter with people who panicked underwater mm. oh, than yeah. I ever did working a walking beat as a cop. Except the difference is I'm in a confined space holding yeah. my breath underwater and having a fight. Because as you will know, everybody knows when you think you're going to drown and you panic, yeah. it's like the no holes barred. Um, it was the, it was one of the funnest jobs I've ever had. I loved it. Did you wear fins and like a, like a snorkel mask or? No, I just had wearing? a mask, no snorkel, just a mask. And we just wore the little water shoes because now our yeah. divers had fins. Yeah. I was going to say they the were fins all set be, up like the divers. fins would get in the way. Yeah. Fins would get in the way for us inside the simulator. But the thing you got to remember is being this a, thing being, is like three stories deep too. this pool, right? It's a huge tank. Yeah, ours wasn't that deep because it wasn't necessary, but it was way deeper than your average, you know, backyard swimming pool. Um, I, I, I forget off the top of my head, might have been 20 feet deep at the deepest end. I'm not, I'm not sure. But um, the thing you got to remember is it was not a prerequisite to go through this class as a student knowing how to swim. So all the oh time, my gosh. We, oh, would wow. have, we would have candidates, students who did not know how to swim. Oh and my gosh. And you're talking a, all different ages have, too, right? All different ages, all different fitness levels, you know, yeah. you name it. So it was, uh, it was challenging at times. We'd put the non-swimmers in red helmet. They had to wear a, you know, the equivalent of a bicycle helmet to, you know, just protect their heads from hitting the, uh, you know, hard, metal objects and, and so forth but would put them in red helmets and they got extra special attention from the divers when they came out the window the diver would be there and just come up underneath them and grab them and take them over to the side of the pool where they got a hold on 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 the on the edge mm -hmm. oh and so I did that. We did survival where we'd put people in the pool and teach them how to use improvised flotation devices, teach them how to use their coveralls as a exit, take off their coveralls, wow. turn them into a flotation device. Yeah, <laughs> that's you, you basically did Navy training because that's Navy exactly what Navy we guys did. do that. Yeah. Yeah. We had to take their pants off in the water and yeah. you know do that whole thing. Yeah. Get, yeah. We had to get rescued by a helicopter as well from the water. That's so, that, but in the Navy, it's like all mostly men. There was a few women. Uh, it was at least went back when I back in my day, and then uh, they're pretty much all the same age in their twenties. I was a teenager, but I guess I guess I was twenty when I went through that school, and uh, so I can't imagine that kind of diversity in terms of age and fitness level and, and whether you can even swim going through that training. I can't yeah. even imagine. 
Yeah. Wow. Amazing. It was, it was different. It it was good. So being in that environment and, and I, cool that, you know, every week I I would teach one of those classes, which took up three of my five day work week and the other two, you know, I do teach classes on confined space entry or H2S or fall protection, all these basic safety training courses that uh, apply to all the folks working on an oil rig, I became an instructor of. Okay. And so, um, now how far away from the, your home is this? Are you traveling really far? Cause Texas is a big place. Yeah. Initially. You know? Yeah. Initially I was traveling about 30, 35 minutes to this particular school oh, later in, in my career bad. as an instructor, before I started going offshore, I had an opportunity to teach major emergency management but that was out of Houston. And that was an amazing class, but I was driving an hour and a half one way, an hour and 15 minutes one way. And that was hard. That was probably not sustainable over the long term. but it gave me, I did it for um, sh- just shy of a year and gave me another great experience, um, another yeah. feather in my cap when I started trying to actually get employed on by a company to go offshore. Yeah. I was fascinated by their work schedule, you know, their, their days off schedule. I work, I work six, six months out of the year and I get a, a year's worth of salary and I have six months off. When I come home from being offshore, um, you know, most, you know, the average American gets a weekend, two days, maybe three days. When I right. get a weekend, it lasts 27 days. And I was fascinated by that schedule. That's what drew me there. Plus, the money was was much better than the what the instructors were getting back uh, on land. Yeah. And um, and we were still trying to recover from you know those lean years uh, yeah. right after I retired. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Makes perfect sense why you'd want to do that job. Um. It's it's a you're giving up those weekends, of course, when you're out out at sea. But when you get back, you have I think the math I can understand why the math would work for your time mm-hmm. off. So you're saying 27 yes. days is enough time to kind of recover and cook your hamburgers and. Well, you know it it uh, on paper, it, it it you you think well you know it's a balance. In reality. Um, you still, you miss a lot. Pick a holiday, pick an anniversary, pick a birthday, and you have a 50-50 chance from one year to the next, whether you're going to be home. And now that I've got kids that are, you know, grown, I only have one left in the house. He's 18. Um, All my kids are grown. Now we got kids getting married. And now how many kids is that? How many kids do you have? Three. Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, it, 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 it's okay for a while, but you, you make a lot of sacrifices, you know, doing this. And um, I'm at, I've been doing it for seven, eight years now. And I'm kind of at the point where uh, I, I, I'm kind of looking for an exit strategy that would allow me to come home. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a long time to do that schedule. So you're doing when you're home, 
you you have some kind of ministry you have a heart for ministry that goes back years to even when you were a police officer mm -hmm. tell us about that you were telling me about the books taking yeah. books everywhere when you were studying <laughs> yeah <laughs> well you know i was a i was a preacher's kid uh growing, growing up in kansas so i've always been around the church um moved to california about high school age was there until um until i was a couple of years after I was retired from from the police department, but as I was in my hmm, early forties, I started I started thinking I really don't want to get stuck doing this job in this law enforcement job till I'm sixty. I'd like to leave at the at when at fifty. That's when you can draw you can legally start drawing on your retirement. And my idea was, I'd like to be able to leave at 50 and start, you know, a second career, but I have no idea in what I need to go back to school, I need to prepare and, and get a plan. And I just was really drawn to, I was really drawn to seminary, to, um, to like New Testament studies or theology. I, I just had a fascination of learning more. So you um, grew up as a Christian? Yeah. You were, I mean, in terms of your beliefs? Yes. Okay. Now, um, uh, by my own admission, your, your dad must have not done too bad of a job then. Well, by my <laughs> own admission, um, uh, interestingly enough, growing up as a preacher's kid, you see all the dark side of the church. You see, you see all the negatives. Um, and, uh, it, it didn't drive me away from church, but it, can you give me an example of that? You obviously don't mean that the lights are turned off at when yeah. you go home and that's dark. What do you yeah. mean by dark? Um, so for me, um, you know, my childhood years, I was, I was robbed of a relationship with my dad because my dad was married to the church. We were in small towns um, and moved uh, uh, all the time. The, the domination that, that he worked for, You'd, you'd, you'd be a pastor of a church. If, if you were a new seminary graduate, you know, they might start you off at a big church where you were an associate pastor, give you a little mentoring, but then eventually they would plant you in your own church where you were the man and there was just you. What, no, can you give me a sense of what uh, tradition this is within the church? Is it? We, uh, we, my dad was a Methodist minister. Oh, so, okay. so the Methodist church, and I don't know that they do this now, but back then they, you didn't plant a guy at one church and he spent his career there. They moved him all the time. They would move the pastor from one church to another, move them up to a bigger church, a bigger town. And um, I was this deathly shy little kid who couldn't get any time with my dad to go play ball or anything because he was doing everything for these little small churches. If they had anything outside of, you know, the Sunday service in terms of groups or organizations or programs, he was the guy doing it. And, um, and uh, so that was a negative. Um, Did your dad never take a Sabbath? No, no. That's kind of a basic thing, um, not a criticism of your father. I, I see it a lot, is that people don't take the Sabbath seriously, the people that are preaching the Bible. It's just mm -hmm. weird. Yeah. Um, 
there's don't murder there's don't commit adultery of course a lot of people don't take that one seriously either um (laughs) stealing but then you have this command to to rest isn't that 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 command i think is one of the most profound things in the Mm -hmm. bible yeah because it's it's one of the ones where okay honor your father and mother i i got that okay I remember as a kid thinking, I wish they would, there was a command for them, for me, but I got, I'm supposed to honor my father, but, but take, take a break. Like you're commanded to do that. Mm -hmm. And I, I just see, I can hear the pain in your voice. Is your dad still alive? No, both my parents uh, uh, passed on mm, within the last five, six years. Do you try to take a Sabbath for yourself? Yes. Um, now I can't. When the the, the month that I'm yeah. offshore, it's it, it's uh, a yep. you know it's same, it, it's every day. Navy. Yeah, same in the Navy. But um, you know, when I come home, um, my wife and I, you know, and she's doing much better because her her involvement in her social media group and. Uh, the the leadership development stuff that she's got for women and the in the courses and everything that she's got a really built out uh, program uh, was very consuming and she caught herself uh, really kind of being like I was when I was uh, when I we maybe hadn't got to this point yet but when I started taking seminary class overwhelmed with just the volume of reading. And I was still working full time. I was very active in the in the church that we we're going to at the time, doing a lot of doing a lot of the Sunday preaching they asked me to do. And at first it was like, yeah, no problem, because I'd be taking this really cool class on the book of Mark or this other really cool class on, you know, church and God's mission. And I would just take stuff that I was learning in class and turn around and just give them the reader's digest version. It was easy to come up with material to speak on because I was, I was, I was in, I was in a seminary class. So, but in order to stay up with the book work, it's like I had a book with me 24 seven. And if I had even five minutes of spare time, my nose was buried in a book trying to stay on top of the volumes of, of material that you had to read and then write papers and you know that's awesome and and it really I, I i literally subjugated a huge amount of my responsibility as a husband and a father during that period of time two three three or four years that i was taking just one maybe two classes at a time and um and was this online that you were taking them or were you no, showing this up was, to a class? This was in a this was in a classroom setting. It was a local seminary in in, uh, in Fresno. Okay, Fresno. Yeah, that's where that's where I did my law enforcement work, Fresno, California. What what agency were you with in Fresno? Fresno Police Department. Okay. I've heard of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you so you had a seminary that was uh, was this a Methodist uh, context still, or actually, it was the only seminary in town. It was the only game in town, and that's why I went there. And they were a Mennonite seminary. No kidding. So Ooh. Mennonites, who are uh, 
professed pacifists. Uh-huh. And here I was in law enforcement. Bringing your gun fact, to class. <laughs> in fact, yeah. Well, at, at one, one of the periods of time when I was going to school there, I had changed my assignment and I was in the traffic division. I was a motor cop riding around on a motorcycle. And I would pull in. There were two semesters I would pull in on my motorcycle. I got clearance by my commander to log off for an hour and a half at a time. Um, so that I could go to class and then I'd log back on and I'd just work an hour and a half over my shift so that I still had the same requisite hours that I put in because the motor unit didn't answer calls for service. They were completely proactive going out, writing tickets and towing cars. That was our job. Wow. Um, So I'd pull into seminary on my motor and all my police leather, pull up, park my bike, go in, and uh, in one of the lounge areas in the student student area, they had some lockers and I got permission to uh, stow my stuff in a locker and locked it up and, uh, and, and I'd take off, you know, the big leather jacket and I'd take off the gun belt and, you know, I'd secure all that. And then I'd go to class for an hour and then go get dressed and go back to work. Wow. It was, uh, it was quite funny, and, uh, and, and I, I think I was quite the talk of the seminary uh, of, for a time, you know, the cop that's going to, that's taking classes over here, and people- That wasn't would, normal for them, to have no, cops no. like that? <laughs> and, and, um, and there was a professor or two that had discussions, you know, in his classes. Now, there were not classes that I was involved in, but the word got back to me that you know things would come up regarding you know not you know Mennonites are very very much into non-violence non-violence across the board you know some in all cases no matter what the set of circumstances is I would not use force against another person I would not take another life I could not do that and those discussions I think kind of elevated a little bit during that period of time when I was showing up <laughs> as, as the resident cop that's uh, going to school there. That's fascinating. Yeah. So you feel like was. you got You feel like you got a good education there. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and uh, all the, all the professors that I worked with were, um, they were great. Um, what classes did you take? Well, there was there was some things like interpersonal communication, uh, church history that were just prerequisites for any master's degree. Um, the churches that the class, the courses that I really gravitated to were in the you know New Testament era. A survey of the Book of Mark was one of the courses by a guy that did his thesis, his PhD thesis on Mark and had authored um, a, uh, a commentary on Mark. So pff, crazy knowledgeable, just super, learned a ton. I uh, had a course on the book of John that I just loved. Had a course on, uh, let's see, the church and God's mission. Um, you know, I started, I started a course on Greek, on, on, on uh, Koine Greek. And I learned that my brain doesn't work with foreign languages very good. That was very challenging. Okay. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> it requires a lot of focus. 
Um, I took my baby Greek. Uh, they call it first year Greek is baby Greek. They, I, I took that over the summer when I was in seminary. Uh, my first master's is in New Testament, biblical studies, New Testament. Yeah, I had to have a major and a minor. My major was New Testament. My minor was Old Testament. There's only two options. You either major in Old Testament, you minor in New Testament, or you do it the other way around. But right. I picked New Testament, and so I had to do the do more Greek. And um, But I was able to have a summer where I did baby Greek, and that's all I did for that summer was uh, prepare for my three classes a week. I believe it was Monday wednesday friday if i'm not correct if yeah, i think it was the first thing in the morning it was r the butt crack of dawn it seemed like it was it was like it was probably like 7 30 or something like that but uh i just remember i had to be ready to rock and roll and it was tough it, it was a tough yeah. tough summer but it's good good training um good for you for wanting more training uh tell me when you're a police officer at this point, what's going on in your mind and your soul that is, is leading you to get more training? Is it, is it questions that you have about the faith? Is it, is it stuff you're reading in the Bible and you're like, what the heck is that all about? Or is it conversations you're having with your fellow officers, people at church? Yeah, that's 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 interesting. Um, interesting question. Um, I just I just knew that I had, in a lot of ways, squandered uh, my relationship with God over over a period of time. Law enforcement is a is a hard gig, and um, and it it affects people in a lot of ways uh, uh there's you know there's a lot of trauma that you take on that you don't realize that you're taking on um i went through i went through a divorce that just wrecked me um midway through my career and there's about a two-year period of my life that is just a blur because i was so depressed and it wasn't as much over the failure of the marriage is what I saw. I saw my kids suffering. Um, you know, I had two children from that previous marriage and um, they were getting drugged through the mud on the other side and included in things that they had no business being included in. And I was just powerless to protect them. And uh, I left with, a, I, I came through that with a lot of guilt but um, yeah. and, and, and a lot of wounds. And it actually, yeah. it actually occurred right in the middle. There was about a five or six year period in my law enforcement career that only now looking back, do I recognize the intensity level of the stress of the job assignments um, one of them started out, I was a crime scene investigator for the homicide unit. So my job was to do this meticulous, detailed investigation of the status of the crime scene, including the dead body, including the wound patterns and, you know, the 
brain splattered across the, you know, across the wall or the disemboweled organs spilled out over the floor. And I would spend hours upon hours with dead people who died hideous, violent deaths, gruesome stuff that people were not meant to see, let alone be experienced, uh, you know, experienced as a victim, let alone ever supposed to perpetrate against another human being, you know, just, you know, the, you know, just really just evil. And it's been hours in that environment. And because we wouldn't release the body to the coroner until the crime scene investigation was completed. So I did that for like three years. And then I was already a member of our SWAT team and violent crime in the city of Fresno got so out of control in the mid nineties, early nineties. Um, and, and, kind of two things really kind of tipped the scales and, and caused our chief to do something pretty radical. Um, there, were, there were areas in, in, in town where if a lone patrol car drove into the wrong neighborhood, like a gang turf area, that that patrol car would just start taking sniper fire. You know, the gang members were trying to make a statement. You don't own this area. We do. You're, you're not welcome. Get out. And I, I literally have three friends whose cars were riddled with bullets, you know, rounds passing through the, 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 the uh, passenger compartment and just missing them by the grace of God kind of a thing. And at the same time that that was happening, um, the drive-by shootings and the, the, the gang wars that were going on over turf and, you know, narcotic sales and so forth, um, innocent children were getting, you know, bystanders were getting caught up in the crossfire in a couple of high-profile events where a straight-A student, you know, was killed in her bedroom doing her chemistry homework by a stray 223 round that came through the wall of the house and hit her in the head and another five-year-old kid walking home from school kindergartner you know with a backpack on hitting the back quadriplegic for life you know and in the midst of all of that the chief uh, activated our SWAT team time put us on the street uh, coined threw together a unit called the Violent Crime Suppression Unit that was made up of the SWAT team and, the, and, and all the gang detectives. And he put us on the street wearing our GI Joe costumes, full tactical gear and automatic weapons and, and said, take control of the streets back. I don't want to bury an officer and I don't want to see, and I don't want to go to a funeral of another kid that has been caught in a crossfire. And he gave us two marching orders. One was accomplish this without breaking any laws. Don't go rogue, do everything legal, but right to the limit of the law. And department policy, mm, that's optional. Like we, like, like all law enforcement agencies, especially in California, had very restrictive pursuit policies. You know, pursuits represent a highly inherently dangerous situation for the general public high-speed pursuits. And because of that, we were virtually never allowed to engage in those. You know, somebody took off and ran one red light or one stop sign, we were ordered to cut it off in order to protect the public. But that sent a message loud and clear to all the criminal elements in town. If the cops are on you, 
and you got dope in the car, or you got drugs in the car, or you're wanted for a felony, all you got to do is run one red light and they'll let you go. And for years and years and years of that policy being in effect, element in town knew that, advantage of that. And he said, you guys aren't cutting off any pursuits. So you're saying that those- the, the criminals were paying attention to yes. enforcement patterns? Absolutely. They're not dumb. They're stupid, but they're not dumb. It's the difference. Um, <laughs> so, so that's the first time I've ever heard of that. They're stupid, yeah. but they're not dumb. Yeah. So um, he told us, he just flat out told us you get in a pursuit. I want you to, I want you to end the pursuit as fast as possible, but don't let them go. If you have to ram them off the road, ram them off the road. And that's what we did. We totaled more police cars in three years and I, I can't shake a stick at. We had some, it, it, was, it was as close as I've ever seen law enforcement come to what you see in the movies. Can you uh, just take a, take a guess? How many, how many cars do you think you totaled? Oh, I would say easily a dozen, maybe. Wow. That's a lot. And, and, and you were with that unit for three years? Yes. Yeah. And we got in, and as you can expect, um, because we were so aggressive, we got into a lot of officer-involved shootings, and so it was very controversial. Um, How many people were in this unit? So 30 plus, Okay. probably. How many people are on at one time? Half of that. Uh, now, now oh, some days, th- some days that'd be all of us because our, our days would overlap. We we set it up so that there would be there would be a a team on seven days a week. Wow! And so I was going to ask weekends, you what your hours were. What were your hours? Uh, we worked kind of a swing shift, maybe uh, four uh, p.m. to uh, two a.m. something like that. Mm-hmm. Though those what hours. Those yeah. hours were, were subject to change if, if they identified some criminal trends that they wanted to go address. Gotcha. And you're, you see, so is this five days a week that you're doing this, four to two? Or is this seven days a week and then you take a longer weekend? Or? No, no, it was either, you know, that's a great question. I can't remember. I think it was four days. I think we were all working four tens at that stage in my career. So I think it was four days a week with three days. Oh, off. that is, that is 10. Yeah. Okay. Well, does that include a meal in there? No. Are you clocking we out would, for your we meal? Would eat on the go. We would usually go. Um, we would usually go as a team. We'd, we'd identify it. Well, yes, it, uh, yes, it included a meal. Um, would usually identify a time, you know, the, the commander or supervisor who was in charge that day would decide on a certain time. Yay, why don't we take, you know, 30 minutes for a lunch break? And he'd just cut, tell everybody, go get a meal, meet back at headquarters. We would all eat together. So everybody was done at the same time. And then we'd get back on the street because we worked like a wolf pack. We didn't send cars all out over the city. We would flood an area with all of us and if one guy made a traffic stop five other units would pull up and form a perimeter around that traffic stop it was like it was very much kind of military 
tactics, which made is in part why it was so controversial. I have to ask, mm -hmm. you mentioned the 223 round. That for those who don't know firearms, that's the same round as a as an M16. It's the same round round as a what do you call a AR15 or a mini 14 for that matter. Or a bolt action 223, you know. Mm -hmm. A 556, it's a very similar round. What do you think about gun control? I'm a staunch Second Amendment advocate. Uh, I because you know that that's person's first thought is oh my gosh they're shooting that's a military grade rep and they we should we should make sure we have gun control they don't put it at like gun control anymore that's a nineties that's an eighties term yeah they would say you know the rhetoric gun safety laws now that's the new gun violence prevention or gun safety I think it's called but you've seen a lot of gun violence. Mm -hmm. You know, so what's your what's your take about the the knee jerk reaction that a lot of people have to have so-called gun safety laws? Um, I'm assuming that, you know, you're you're uh, that you have a, a view about this and I'm almost certain I'm correct, even though I just met you today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, I, I think I think passing laws trying to ledger legislate our way into reducing the number of guns on the street is not the way to go because the only people that will abide by those laws are the law enforcement, the, the law abiding citizens, not the criminal element. And we are never going to rid the criminal element in our country of the access of guns. There are too many. There's just too many out there. They are, they're too easy to get a hold of and they don't, they don't buy guns through the legal channels. They don't go get a background check. They don't go to the local gun store to purchase their firearms. It's black market, it's under the table. And all of the laws in the world that we put out there um, are, are, are not keeping guns out of the hands of the criminal element. Law enforcement, you know, I mean, you can look at all kinds of different statistics on what their response time is to critical incidents. They're going to get if there's if there's like, you know, someone doing violence with a firearm, the the cops are going to get there when it's over. If you want to if you want to protect the people from gun violence, you need to put more guns in the hands of citizens who are well trained and understand the laws and are, you know, uh, because they're going to be the ones that have an opportunity to intervene. Rarely is it going to be the officers because they get there after everything is over most of the time. As you know, from three years on crime scene unit investigation with the homicide division. Wow. You've seen a lot of dead bodies. Yeah. <laughs> you've had a lot of time to think about. Yeah what works to prevent this as much as possible without infringing on individual liberty. I think a lot of people in this gun control so-called debate, and that sometimes I don't even think it's a debate. I think it's just people saying slogans, but in our side does it too. 
sometimes with the slogans, but you know, we allegedly both sides want to pre- <clears throat> are bothered by murder, which I'm, I, I get a clear perception from you that you are deeply against murder and you would like to prevent as much of it as possible. Absolutely. But you, as everybody as should be everyone. Yeah. So that's your, that's the way you're coming from it. You're not like one of these guys that just, you know, uh, one of these tactic cool guys that doesn't think very deeply about things. Maybe he's never even seen a dead body. Yeah. But you've seen stuff. Um, what's your sense for the other officers that you worked with their views on it? Do you guys ever talk about that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, I don't I mean, know. I know that you don't speak for them, but. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know anybody that I worked with that I was peers with in law enforcement that is that, um, that are strong advocates for um, the kind of gun control legislation that, um, that people are trying to, trying to pass. Uh, they just, they understand that what the way that the gun control lobby, the things that they are trying to do, all the officers that I know of are, are completely convinced is, is going to have no impact on making their job easier and reducing violent crime or reducing gun crime. Mm. It's going to make it harder for everyday citizens to protect themselves. The law enforcement officers, we don't have to do that because by law, we can carry a gun anywhere we want. But they have empathy and sympathy for the law-abiding citizens out there who, who want to protect themselves and their families and know that all of these control measures that are trying to be that they're that they have and are trying to continue to ram down our throats aren't going to make the people safe makes a lot of sense so your view is not like an outlier it's not like a oh that's david that yeah david nra guy your view that, is been, pretty common yeah, my experience i would say say that is people in law enforcement that matches my experience as well obviously i've never well i've not been in law enforcement but it matches the people i know and the people i have known for a long time um thanks for sharing that um so you're a proponent of uh, concealed carry for people yes want to get trained yeah, I, I actually, when, when I moved to Texas, um, I had an option when we first moved to put on my, on my retire, my retired ID card for, you know, that says I'm a police officer, retired in good standing, et cetera. I had an option of putting a CCW endorsement on that. And at the time, I opted not to, because what I thought it was going to require was for me to go back once a year from Texas to California to go to my old agency for the, to run through one qualification course in order once a year to, to show competency. And I I just said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not (laughs) going to go back there once a year to shoot a qualification course. Uh, And so instead, when I came out to Texas, I knew 
because of that ID card that most officers out here, if I, you know, if they pulled me over on a traffic stop or something like that, and, and I told them, hey, I've got a gun in the car, which is legal in Texas, not in California, but legal in Texas, I would still tell them that as a courtesy, which would open up the, for conversation. I'm, I'm a retired law enforcement officer and I could show them that ID card, even though it didn't say that I had a CCW endorsement on it. Most of these cops is not, are, are not going to treat me. They're going to treat me as a, you know, they're, they're going to understand that, that I'm carrying a gun and they're going to be fine with it. But I also know that you can't, you know, I would tell people, you know, when, you know, they'd talk to me about, you know, what do you do when you get pulled over by a police officer? And I go, well, here's a couple of do's and don'ts. But the one thing you got to realize is getting pulled over by a cop is kind of like Forrest Gump's box of chocolate. You never yeah. know what you're going to get until the officer shows up at your window. Yeah. Some officers are super cool. Some officers are super friendly. They're conversive. They, they care about you. Even if they're writing a ticket, they're wanting to, they're wanting it to be as pleasant a conversation, a, a, a contact as possible. Other officers get tainted. They, 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 you know, Ooh, and, and they're jerks and they can be, sorry, they can be assholes. I know I worked with some um, and it's unfortunate, but the job, uh, yeah, the job can change people. You mentioned going through a divorce and you had a couple of years where you were having a real hard time. Do you think that you might've been an officer like that at one point? Um, no, for whatever reason, the way that, the way that both the job and the divorce um, affected me was, was, was different. It wasn't, you, you, you didn't see it on the outside. Um, and my contacts with, you know, people on the job, I never remember a time when I got kind of like that with, with just contacts on the job. I still looked at people as, you know, I, you know, I want to connect with them. I want them to understand. I want to be professional where, where all of this, all the stress of all this, of, of the job, plus the divorce, what, what it did to me is it, and I didn't learn this until um, recently, it, it, um, it caused, it caused me uh, some of these memories that had some of these high impact critical incidents, stress related memories that, you know, a psychologist might consider like a trauma wound wound up getting your brain, your brain actually has physical locations where it stores memories, you know, neuroscience has identified this and memories from our past are supposed to get stored, filed, if I'm remembering this correctly in, in the prefrontal cortex a whole bunch of my memories from really that, that really compact five or six years where I was just under a lot. I was just experiencing a lot from the homicide unit, the divorce, the violent crime suppression unit. I left that and was a child abuse detective. That was hideous. Um, that was like the icing on the cake. And a lot of those memories wound, get, wound up incorrectly being stored in my 
limbic system. So when they, sorry about that, when they got triggered by a current event that should not trigger them, it would throw me into kind of like fight or flight syndrome. That's what the limbic system does, right? Yep. And that's right. where it affected me is in my personal relationships when I felt challenged or um, I, I would either, where there was rocks in the road, particularly in my marriage, um, I would either respond by aggressively moving forward or withdrawing in retreat. And that's no way to develop intimacy in a marriage. You know, it, 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 it kind of defeats the purpose. It goes against the grain. Yeah. And um, I discovered this and I got onto a, a road where I'm actually now actively, as we speak, doing some things to address this. And there's a way to, as I'm sure you're probably aware, to change some of the neural pathways in our brain, some of the way that our brain processes things. And there's actually a way to move those memories in back into the prefrontal cortex where they're supposed to be. So I don't get kind of triggered in this way and have difficulties with relationships, whether it's my wife, my kids, coworkers, whatever. Yep. Um, what kind I used of, to what go kind back. Of, what kind of stuff are you going through for that? Um, or have gone through? Yeah, no, I'm currently going through uh, uh, EMDR sessions, uh -huh. eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I, I don't know how long this has been around. <laughs> um, I think it's kind of relatively new, uh -huh. um, but it's a, a it's a way. I've been through two of these sessions. I have another one tomorrow before I go offshore. Really? Wow. Yeah, I'm right in the middle of it. So um, you're just now. Is, is this brand am, new for you? Am, oh, yeah. This is right now, as we speak, I am working on reprocessing some of the way my brain works that got screwed up from, I mean, this was 30 years ago now. Some of this wow. stuff was 30 years ago where, where these some yeah. of these neural pathways got formed and some right. of these memories got, you know, stored yep. in the wrong spot and it took me it took me a a visit back to fresno about four or five years ago and we had a swat team reunion uh while i was there uh about 30 guys showed up um some guys that wow. i hadn't, hadn't worked with hadn't seen in maybe 15 years or so uh, guys that i had deep amount of respect for um, solid men, good, moral, upstanding character, some of them strong believers. And over the this evening, as I was kind of work in the room and being able to catch up with individuals and, you know, have a 15 or 20 minute conversation, you know, what's going on in your life? And, you know, what have you been doing? I saw this reoccurring pattern time after time after time. These guys' personal life and sometimes their professional life was falling apart. Uh, multiple affairs, divorced, lost cu total custody of the kids, can't see their children, um, substance abuse problems, three DUIs, suspension from the department, you know, pr a demote, you know, got promoted into positions of rank and then ran into authority problems, demoted, 
um, some guys with with pretty debilitating health problems, you know, heart issues that uh, they couldn't do certain jobs anymore and were on the verge of being retired from it. And halfway through the night, I pulled together two of my closest buddies from those days, you know, kind of my inner circle guys. And I said, what in the hell is going on? I'm talking to these guys and all this, you know, and they, and he, they looked at me and they said, don't you know, it was VCSU, you know, that unit that we did for three years, it screwed us all up. We're all messed up from those days. And it was just the stress, the, uh, a variant of PTSD. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't across the board. Absolutely. It wasn't 100%, sure. but a significant number of guys um their lives were in shambles and i remember going home from that evening and uh talking to to my wife and i told her this story and i said you know the things that's really messing with me right now is why did that not happen to me what was different how was i shielded from all of that and she looked at me and raised her eyebrows and <laughs> and laughed out loud and she says you got to be kidding me think about the hell that we have lived through the last 10 years think about how many times we were on the verge of divorce it's only by the grace of god that we're still together and i had my first aha moment huh. and i stepped back and i and i looked and i said you're right it just affected me in a different way. And it and in the primary area that it attacked was our marriage and our relationship, how we relate to each other, my inability to relate to you appropriately. Wow. Now, I will admit I was still blinded and still in a state of denial because in my mind I thought, thank God I've, I'm over that. Thank God I've gotten on, I've gotten through it. I'm, I'm on the other side. I've gotten enough healing and I've gotten closer with the Holy Spirit. And yo, yeah, you know, but yeah, it sure affected us in the first half of our marriage. Well, I was blinded to the fact that it was still going on, or I didn't want to look deep enough inside me to be honest with myself. And, yeah. and it wound up coming up again this last year. And she just told me, she said, she just, she had a, one of those brave conversations with your spouse where she said, you know, one of the things that hurts me the most with all the stuff that we've been through is it came to your attention, how all this junk from your past is affecting you and, 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 and causing issues in, in our life. And you have not, you, you have refused to address it. You won't press into it. So I had my second aha moment and I went, yeah. It's hard to know how to press into it though. It's hard to know what is it? What's that next step you got to do? Like what's, it is hard. It is hard. So it's not obvious. It's not it's obvious. Not like, obvious. okay, that's just normal life for you. That's just how it things are. Normal. It felt sure. normal to me. I yeah, thought yeah, I was absolutely. responding appropriately. That's just your life. Yeah. But so how do you, how do you figure out what that next step is to address it, to make it healthier? You just, you just go on a quest and it's a, it, it's a, okay. it's a trial and error. I mean, I've been through a lot of inner healing sessions, the kind of stuff that the church, you know, sozos that they offer or, or prayer ministries, things like that. 
Um, and all of them, I would say, I got some benefit out of, but none of them addressed that deepest, darkest root and were able to look under the root that was at the, uh, look under the rock that was at the bottom of the pile. Every single one of them I, 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 I benefited from. And I, and I wouldn't shy people away from those kind of experiences. They're good. Men need to do a lot better job admitting that we have had wounds over, you know, over the course of our life that are impeding us even now. And we need yeah. to be man enough to, to, to go try and address them, but you just go on a trial and error basis. Yeah. You try something and you see, you know, what life is like on the other side of it. And if there's still some issues, you try something else. What I discovered after this, my second aha moment is when we started looking for a a practitioner who dealt yeah. specifically with trauma, post-traumatic stress. Yeah. And lo and behold, we found a guy in town in College Station. That's his entire practice. And I was so excited. And I went, yes. And I look, I pull up his website and in big, bold letters across the top, not accepting new clients. And I went, oh, no, it can't be. <laughs> oh, no. And I just heard this voice in my head said, no, you need to call him anyway. Just call yeah. him. Yeah. So the first time I called him, I, you know, you, you get a voicemail, you're leaving a message for an answering service. And I just said, here, here's my name. Here's my number. I'm really interested in doing some work with you. I believe I got some trauma issues from in my past that is affecting my present. Please call me. We can talk about scheduling. It was very generic. And I waited around a couple hours and I couldn't get it. It just felt like, I just felt like there's this, 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 I'm being told you need to call him back and you need to tell him your story. You need to tell him more about why. So I went, okay. So I called him back a second time and I said, you know, Hey, I'm the guy that left that first message, but I just feel like I need to maybe tell you a little bit more what's going on. And I told him about law enforcement. I told him about the homicide unit, the violent crime suppression unit, officer involved shootings, you know, blah, blah, blah. I told him about the divorce that came right in the middle of it. Then the child abuse detective, which was hideous. And I go, I've got a lot of friends that got really messed up from, from that. And I've been in denial that it messed me up. And I'm at the point in my life now where I'm ready to look under the deepest rock. That's why I want to work with you. And that guy called me back within the hour. And he said, look, I'm booked out eight months in advance. I have no openings, but I heard your story. And you and I need to talk. We need to work together. I'm going to find a way to get you in. Um, any crack I have in my schedule, any, any cancellation, if I have to come in early or if I have to stay late, um, we're going to do some work together. So. He's a Christian counselor at Taboot, so awesome. I mean, even better, um, uh, uh, even I, better, I, you know. I'm able to, point. I'm able to appreciate this as a military veteran. I've been through EMDR myself. Oh yeah, and so I I know exactly. I'm interested. Do you, did did you have any kind of reaction after your first one in your body? Um, I felt a little. Did you have weird dreams or anything? my dream my the the my dreams have increased yes 
I'm noticing, I'm remembering more of them. We dream all the time. Oh, I yeah. just you normally wake up and don't have any conscious memory of the dream of the multiple dreams that I had the night before. So I'm you remembering have vivid more. dreams. You're having vivid They're dreams. More vivid. Yeah. And um that means it's working. <laughs> and and yeah, and uh and and I've noticed some of um that there's there's even you know and we and we've it, we're do you still feel sensitive after yeah do you feel sensitive after it for a while i mean everybody has a different reaction but i don't know that sensitive is a word that i would use i felt drained oh, um okay and uh, because yeah. if my sessions were anything like yours they don't just hit the big trauma events that really yeah. kind of they yeah. go all yeah the it, that's right that's right I've, I've gotten in, in, and we started at memories that I have like at four years old. Oh yes. That's right. And that's right. That, yeah. that disconnect You're getting into it. Yeah. That's that right. disconnect between me and my dad during his yeah. pastor years. And, that's right. And, and, and I'm longing for him to be able to go out and play ball with me, but yep. he was studying for, you know, his, or is analyzing his last sermon or, you know, getting ready for this yeah. next, you know, group meeting or you know whatever um that was once and he actually does a, this guy does a lot of work with military units but yeah. you know and um he'd say, i went you to know, a special i went to a military veteran specialist yeah yeah and even the guys in, you know that let's say you know maybe were in combat in iraq or afghanistan or something the trigger event that kind of identified that they needed some extra help may have been a, you know, a, a really rough mission. But when they come into the EMDR session, everything winds up goes. being related to, That's right. to nearly all the time to those formative childhood years between, sure. you know, three and 12. That's, That's where right. the first the first crack in your psyche was formed, and yeah. then all these other trauma events that happened through your adolescent years, your young adult years, your middle adult years, and now now you're on combat missions. They keep pounding at that crack until it breaks open. I'm I'm on on this podcast next week. I'm having a trauma specialist on. And what I like about the person I'm having on is the, the way she defines trauma. And I think a lot of men could really benefit from this, that trauma, a lot of, a lot of men think that and women too, I would think probably, but a lot of men think that you have to go through something like what you went through, or you have to be sent to a, uh, so a combat unit in, in, in Afghanistan or something like that, or go through some really horrible um, shipwreck or, or car accident or something. It could be, it could be any number of things. It's, it's about how you process stress. And yes. that's, that's all like who you are from the time you're a kid, how you, how you're able to deal with what's coming up and what tools and resources you were given as a child and, and also how you are as an individual, how God created you. Mm -hmm. And uh, some, we all, we all do it differently. We all process things differently. And um, I think it's really cool that you, you're getting, you found somebody mm -hmm. like that, this guy, and, and somebody that knows what they're talking about, you trust this guy? 
So far, I'm uh, so very far. so far very impressed. Yeah, so and it's really cool. I mean that that's a great model for guys. But you also just the the thought that you don't have to be um have some kind of crazy background like you have. Um, and I think that's you the, could you might have trauma yes from something from a relationship or a job yes that you that you got fired from or you lost like in the recession or you lost a house yeah uh, there's there's all sorts of losses the economy could be church conflict it could be relationship could be kids so I I think that's really David that's really cool that you're going through that. It, I, I think you're right when you said, um, I think what's really important is it doesn't take somebody like me who had a very active law enforcement career, somebody like you that was in the military, doesn't take those kind of extreme circumstances yeah. for a man to, to be impacted by the knocks that come against him in life because they we all get them to some degree when we're a kid, there's, everybody's got some issues and, and we get, you know, we get knocks, we get, there's hard, That's right. life is hard. Yes. And, um, and it's, it, it, now it may be harder for, for the typical, let's say male that came out of a military, you know, background or law enforcement background when, when you have this hyper sense of, of, of feeling like I've got to be the tough guy. I've got to be able to handle it and push through. All through my law enforcement, every time I was in involved, officer involved shooting, we had counseling. You know, every time after a really, really bad homicide scene, my supervisor, the law enforcement is aware of the stress that this job puts on you. And they would come to me, you know, peer counselors would come time and time again. And are you okay? Do we need to talk? Do you need to see anybody? And was that helpful when they did that? Well, when they I, say, are I, you I, okay? No, no, it wasn't <laughs> because I wasn't willing to accept it. It was like, no, I'm good. I'm good. And I, it was, it was, it was maintaining this, this persona of being the alpha male. I can I hate, handle I hate, it. I, I hate that question. Do. I hate that question. Are you okay? Yeah. I mean, unless you're actively like in a, an emergency and it's like, we have five seconds and we got to keep moving. Are you okay? That makes sense. Okay. But like, like after something stressful, are you okay? I don't know. I mean, I might just be nitpicking and I, I am highly critical, but just, um, I just if, feel if like, gonna... I, I feel like, what do you expect me to say? I'm going to say, yeah, it's a, it's a, no, it's a, it's a, it's not a conversation starter. I don't think, I think a better way would be something like, I think you've been through a lot of stress and I'm here. If you, if you want to talk about it, I'm interested in listening and hearing about it and just ask good questions. Yeah. Are, are you okay? Is not a good question. No. And we got, we have to, you know, ultimately in the law enforcement profession, maybe also in the military, we need to change the organizational culture when it comes to our understanding of, of maintaining our own mental health. And it needs to not be optional. We need to get more training in it. We need to have our eyes open to what is happening to us, even though we don't realize it's happening to us. And then we're going to go talk. We're going to go, you know, it's not an option. Do you want to go talk? We're going to go talk. Um, 
because, you know, I mean, I stopped counting at 10, the number of police officers that I used to personally work with who've committed suicide. At 10, it got too depressing. I don't know if there's been more, but I stopped keeping a tally when I reached double digits. And it's the same in the military. People coming back from, you know, we've been involved in this war on terror now for however many years that we're just now kind of backing away from. And we've got a generation of men, you know, who came back uh, uh, a statistically significant percentage of them are going to be jacked up to some degree and they don't know it or aren't willing to look at it. I didn't know it. And then when I got signs of it, I still wasn't willing to look at it because I don't want, you know, we, it's just ingrained in us to not show weakness, to not admit that we need help. We can handle That's it right. ourselves. That's I right. can get through this. This is in an unintentionally what gets communicated to people in my old career, your old career, all yeah. the time. I would say as, as stressful as my military service was at times, <laughs> sometimes it was incredibly peaceful. Some of the most peaceful times I remember were in the military. I have good memories uh, of the military for the most part. Um, some incredibly stressful times, some incredibly hard times, but, but my tr trauma that I initially went to EMDR for was 15 years on the Democrat controlled college campuses in Los Angeles, where I was, I, I would say there were times of those years where it was actually harder than being in the military. I don't doubt it at all. I don't Ex doubt it at all. Yeah. Explaining that to um, my therapist what was really kind of what opened my eyes to that I'm, I'm actually pushing down a lot that, and I'm not talking about a lot because I think that I shouldn't have the trauma reaction I have from it. Mm -hmm. But the way I experienced it, and, be, and I've learned I am a, a sensitive guy. I'm highly sensitive, especially when it comes to stuff I really care about, which education is a key thing for me. When I see these kids and how I got a pretty nice big picture of education in L.A. because I taught on a number of campuses over several years. So I was able to see community colleges, big state universities. Uh, I taught at two Cal States. I taught at four Christian colleges and some of those for over a decade, Pepperdine and Loyola Marymount. I taught in gang areas. I taught in Malibu and rich areas. I got the whole gamut and my whole, I, 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 I was higher education is destroying the country. It's oh, destroying yeah. the entire country. Oh yeah. That's what was doing me in that, that that's what was killing me, my soul. And the fact that people couldn't see it. I mean, you can see it immediately when I say it. You, you immediately know. But a lot of people, when I describe it, they don't know what I'm talking about. And that was another layer of the trauma, which is how do I even say what I'm talking about? It's like I can't even articulate it. It's so I'm, hideous and evil. 
yeah and dark I'm, I'm assuming that you are aware of and i would assume you are probably a fan of jordan peterson i i've heard of him <laughs> okay well he says the same exact thing yeah about about higher education and he yeah. is a former yeah. college professor yeah and a therapist and a, yes. and a and a psychologist too so he's, he's a and, practitioner and, too yeah yeah but he has the same exact point of view yeah it's since you're a christian i'm going to say it, this is sometimes i didn't even care if you're a christian i'll say it this way i think it's demonic actually and and i i think that there's a dark presence on the college campuses which yeah. is explains a lot of what i see across the whole country but um because the college campuses have deep problems that are going unaddressed and um well anyway i don't want to turn this interview about me but that's kind of some of my it's fascinating and it's all relative everything is connected and um you know that demonic presence and you know I, I would say that the two of us are probably our theology on this is at least in the same ballpark that, you know, the enemy ultimately has been defeated. There is an enemy out there. Right. He's personal. And um, but he has been defeated and he's he's kind of been neutered, but he hasn't been. You know, it's the difference between uh, uh, D-Day and V-E day. We're in the in-between times. Um, he's still roaming around prowling, but the, his only weapon is getting us to come into agreement with his lies, right? Is getting us to believe it's, it's he, his battleground is in here. It's not the exorcist, you know, Linda Blair elevating from her bed, her head spinning around puking green vomit. Um, the major battleground in every individual is this, and we're losing that battleground in a, in a huge segment of our society. They've been duped into a belief system, an ideology that is the source of it, um, probably on the demonic scale. Yeah. So do you believe that demons are real? Sure. So a lot of people are listening to this are like, whoa. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, whoa. Now, can I do? Do I have? Well, how a, do you explain do North we, Korea? How do you explain the Soviet Union? There are there are places that are on. There's entire regions for decades that are just completely dark. At least you could eat. You could. A lot of people. A lot of my students. They just deny that exists. Yeah. Uh, no. North Korea is probably not as bad as we think. Oh, C- Cuba. Well, what was before that? That was worse. You know, there's always some kind of excuse for these crazy regimes that that show up. Well, when I see signs of that in my own country, and I I realize, you know, it's actually the exception. America is the exception in in the world. Yeah. Protecting Um, people. I think there is a lot um, to Paul's you know, writings about principalities and powers. There are yeah, spiritual that's forces. Right, that's right. There are spiritual that's, that's forces what I was getting that form over the systems and institutions of this world. And yes, in this country. And um, and then they and then a combination 
they get stronger, I believe, as the culture, as the organizational culture within that system or, or institution is deteriorating and getting farther and farther away from kind of the kingdom or kingdom principles, that power gains power, that spiritual, spiritual force. You know, the new age people, there's a ton of new age stuff out there. And they would talk about, they would use terms like spiritual forces or spiritual entities. Okay. Yeah. The Bible calls it something different. Principalities and powers, um, Satan and demonic hordes, whatever they're, we're all speaking about most of the time, similar things. We're just calling them something different and we have a different understanding of their origin or their purpose or how they work, but they're, there are real, real spiritual forces, and the education system in the United States has a spiritual force, power, principality, whatever you want to call it, that that has a has an influence, has a governing influence on it. Um, individual schools, you can micro niche that down. The institution as a whole, higher education might have, you know, uh, you know, this, it, but that you go all the way down to individual schools, there can be a spiritual entity yeah. over there. The same with yeah, churches, the same with denominations. Oh, the same I was going to say churches, yeah. The entertainment industry has a yeah. very real spiritual power, Big spiritual time. force. And um, what about uh, what about when you're when you're a police officer in Fresno? There were some areas of that city that were under control or or influence of that were clearly different. Wouldn't you say that's true? Oh yeah. Very much. What, what's your theory about that from a, while you were doing the law enforcement, did you feel like there was a kind of a dark spiritual presence in some areas that was, um, uh, I, how do you, how do you understand the criminal um, criminality as it pertains to that? And I don't mean criminality like, somebody's got an, a, a, a magazine that holds 11 rounds and not 10. And that guy's <laughs> otherwise a law and boarding citizen. I mean, the kind of immoral horror crap that you were seeing. Yeah. That's what I mean by criminality. I mean, really bad. Yeah. Right, like really right. bad. Yeah. At the time, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I wish, I wish my life had been different. You know, I wish I could go back and kind of redo don't we all sometimes wish we could we could change some things about our past at the yeah. time that I was working in those really depressed areas where violent crime was just really out of control um, it wasn't the period of time in my life when I had the strongest walk with the Lord you know I have had my roller my history with my relationship with God has been very up and very down there have been times that I've walked away times that I have come back, you know, like the prodigal son, oh, my life is falling apart. I need you now. You know, I look back at my life and I go, what a, what an immature believer I, you know, that I was. Um, but as, but now, as you look back on those areas, as you look back now, now I look back on those areas and I think, how, and how would you do it differently? I'm interested. I would be, I would be very more in tune with um, my understanding of what we've just been talking about, spiritual forces, spiritual presence that are over some of these depressed areas in town. And I would feel like, 
um, I was walking in with a completely different level, you know, in, in, the, in the violent crime suppression, completely different level of protection in the violent crime suppression era of my career, when we went into some of these areas where a lone patrol car would get sniped, we would run, we would go in in force, set up defensive perimeters and, and in, in second tier perimeters and, you know, and in our own power, in our own physical power control, I would go in now feeling like I had you know, what is it? In, is it in Ezekiel where the dude's like, oh my gosh, the, the, uh, the, the enemy out there is so massive. We can't, you know, we don't have enough. And it was, was it Ezekiel that said, you know, now look up and just the chariots and angels, and, you know, just the, the spiritual forces of light that you walk in. When you walk in, when you understand, you know, some of these deeper things, you understand that you have a you kind of walk in with the kingdom. You walk in with a spiritual yeah. power that's superior to that that exists in this in 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 that realm, and that you can, at least temporarily, mm. you know, uh, uh, take control or dominance. Now you still have your, your gun, right? <laughs> I, I would always have my gun. Um, however, I do know one guy. And this is a true story from. I was like, how how long how much did these Mennonites get to you? <laughs> yeah, no, there is there was a time when I was in the you know it was in that era. There was a street evangelist in Fresno that was a that rode a horse, and he went out at night. He lived up in the foothills somewhere, and um, and he had several different horses. He would trailer them down. And he would get out and he had affixed on his saddle and on his, he had these LED blinking lights and he would walk his horse around the streets of Fresno. And ends um, of the rough areas too? He would go into all of these areas. He was this cow, he was kind of like this cowboy street evangelist. He would just go in and just talk to people. But he wasn't armed? No, not armed. And he had a he had a story that he told one time. He was off of his horse. He was in a park, and he was confronted by two guys that were clearly, you know, under the influence of some kind of, of narcotic. And they were going to kill. They, and I don't remember if it was a knife or a firearm, but they showed every intention of of just wanting to kill him right there. And he he just dropped to his knees and extended his, his hand as he started praying. And these guys just poof, dropped their stuff, ran. This guy walked in with a level of, uh, of, of presence and even security or protection that, and I would say, I would talk to him and I would say, you are better you are better protected than I am when I go in with 15 SWAT guys into the same, into the same neighborhood. Now, God bless him. I, you know, and I would love to have his faith and walk in his, uh, you know, ability of manifestation of the power. I still wouldn't do it without a gun. It's too yeah. ingrained in me. It, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Well, a lot, and some of these gangbangers, if you're weird, they, you can get away with a lot. 
and you're the horse guy with the lights yeah you're not going to interfere with what we're doing in here yeah but they're not he's not a he he did he obviously was protected obviously spiritually so that's interesting that's fascinating gosh did you ever talk to him yes i had several conversations with him what was his name do you remember his name i do not remember his name and i don't know if he's still alive um I would have to I would have to make some phone calls. He was actually one of one of the crime scenes that I did when I was working in the homicide unit was a uh, was a was a shooting that occurred in the in a drive through lane at some behind some, you know, pizza parlor or some fast food place. And there was this. uh, There was a center block wall and on the south side of the center block wall. a couple carloads of one gang were were parked and on the other side of the center block wall about three or four rival gang members snuck up popped up over the wall and shot about six or seven people i don't remember how many of them died or how many of them survived but they shot it was like it was like a shooting of six or seven or eight victims but there was all kinds of rounds that were going to, in the southerly direction. And right before this happened, this guy was, was walking, you know, walking by on the big major street south um, with his horse. I mean, you know, so, I mean, he was just, he was there a minute before it happened. And um, I knew who this guy was at the time. And so when I got there and was part, doing part of the investigation, somebody told me, horse dude, went walking by. So I spent half the night, you know, tracking down where the horse dude was to see if he was a, you know, viable witness that had seen anything um, that was, uh, you know, beneficial to the investigation. I hesitate to ask, but I feel like I have to about the child crime unit you were with. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like uh, sharing anything from that? It was just, it was just hideous. Um, uh, it, it, it was, it was the ugliest thing that I, I mean, granted on the homicide unit, I saw hideous, violent, torturous deaths. Um, but most of the vast majority of time, they were adults whose lifetime of decisions led them to be there at that moment. And literally, I mean, they had some degree of culpability and responsibility for, uh, for, for what happened. Now, that does not mean and will never mean that they deserved it. No one does. But they lived, a, they lived a life making choices that it was hard. It was, let me put it this way. It was easy for me not to look at them and see a 100% innocent victim. They played a role based on a lifetime of choices that led them to be in that situation that led to their death. Didn't deserve it. Are you talking about the children? No, no. The these, are, these are the adults at the homicide scenes. Okay, gotcha. gotcha. Now, now the hugest change when I was in the child abuse detect uh, unit, every single one of these 
kids were innocent victims. Um, That's a big difference. <laughs> yeah, that, that not, not in a million years, you know, had anything to do with the things that were perpetrated against them in terms of responsibility, culpability. They were the true, you know, just the, tr the, the, the truest definition of an innocent victim are children. And how long went, were you with that unit? I was like two years with that unit and I went, I can't do this anymore. It's killing me. So, um, but you know, I'd go to SIDS deaths that were not criminal, but I would have to go to make sure that there wasn't any sus suspicion of foul play. And I would be around the parents that just unexpectedly lost a child to, you know, a crib death. I mean, how hideous is that? Um, I go to shaken yeah. babies. Uh, we had more shaken babies uh, that these kids are now victimized and are going to have permanent brain damage the rest of their life. If they weren't killed outright, they'll be permanently handicapped with brain for the rest of their life because they had an idiot father who half, I mean, really this huge amount of time, they were the teenage gangbanger father that knocked somebody up. The, the mom, you know, is trying to do right. She's trying to go out and be responsible. She's got a part-time job and three or four days a week, she gets the father to come off the street and watch the baby while she can try and go make enough money to get formula. And this guy can't handle because he has no mental capacity to handle a child that's screaming and he can't make him stop. Yeah. So many times saw that scenario wow. and would shake it to try and get it to stop screaming. And then it would stop screaming, but then he'd realize something's wrong. I mean, just oh, beyond hideous. Um, I would have to go sometimes to, uh, you know, to the morgue when they shot, you know, not always a baby, but I mean, I remember one time, you know, going to a hospital in the, the makeshift, you know, the morgue they had in the hospital where I want to say it was just a, like about a 10 year old girl had passed, had brought into the hospital. She died. We didn't know what the cause of death was. And my sergeant sent me over there to basically do an examination of the body to see if there are any signs of trauma, any signs of foul play. And so here's this 10 year old girl laying on a stainless steel slab naked. Jeez. Oh my gosh. And, and I'm having to, you know, look over every, you know, square inch of her body to see if there's anything and she was the most beautiful little girl I've ever seen in my life. She was just this perfect, and you know, just, I just was just taken by her beauty. And I got, when I finished and I got my car, I had about a, I don't know, five mile drive to get back downtown to get to headquarters. Mm -hmm. And I just weeped uncontrollably the whole drive down the freeway. I just was bawling like a baby because it was just so sad. And this may have been not a criminal thing. It just may have been some kind of natural cause, you know, 
but it was just so sad. And that so every, everything that you're looking over, at over is over sad. Yeah, it's just hard. And it, whether it's criminal or not, you're there to pay close attention to details that nobody would rather nobody would want to pay attention to (laughs) uh criminal or not and the criminality if even if criminality is present doesn't really feel great to be there after that to now process this person into the criminal justice system and and you know and i know looking back that i would come home by this time by the time i was in the child abuse unit, um, Melissa and I were just newlyweds. We had started dating and, and we got married. Um, and um, wow. I remember intentionally going home and not telling her things because they were so horrible. And I think we men will try in, in these kind of situations, we'll try and protect our wives by not sharing and, and by doing that, we're trying to do the right thing to protect our wives. We just want, we don't want them to worry about us. We don't want to tell them about the crazy pursuit that I got into and thought I was going to die. Or, you know, we don't want, we don't share that with them. But by not having a relationship in where you share, you're not being able to get it out. You wind up internalizing it all and yeah. it stays inside you. And, and over yep. time, it just begins to fester. You need an outlet. Well, who are you going to tell otherwise? Learn that you need to be able to talk about this stuff. Yeah. And um, and we don't do a good job, especially with the men out there in professions like military, like law enforcement, that have to be the protectors, who who need to be the tough guy in the tough situations. We don't do a good job of telling them you need to be the guy that can cry when it's all over and can share how it scared the holy crap out of you or how right. this dead girl, yes, even though you don't have a daughter yet, just wreck, just broke your heart. You got to be able to talk about these things. Wow. You, uh, you're doing some ministry with men now. Mm-hmm. Would you like to say something yeah, about I, that? I just, I, I started, my wife's got this thriving uh, work that she does with women and, and leadership development and, cool. you know, just all kinds of things. She's got a, she's got a whole, you know, uh, built out leadership team, uh, per, does courses and coursework. And she and I have taught, done some training together, not necessarily for women, but uh, <laughs> business and ministry kind of combinations. But, mm-hmm. but as she began developing out this women's ministry, I kind of went, I should, all right, I should probably do the same for guys, right? I should do a men, I should make a men's group. So, so I did, it was about a year ago. It, 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 it's not built, it's not big, it's not built out, it's not fancy, uh, but it's just a group of guys that are getting together and um, just going on a journey, trying to, uh, trying to identify and confirm God's original design intent for men and how that is to be appropriately expressed in their masculinity. In in a time and season in this country where men and masculinity are either under furious attack from multiple sides or 
the the culture is trying to redefine them in ways that clearly are wackadoo you know in a time where you know i was just talking to a good friend of mine a former law enforcement trainer up in the state of washington and in his opinion the state of washington has gone more liberal than california it's like gone off the charts and he says they are putting tampon dispensers in boys restrooms in grade schools because they're being told that you boys can menstruate you can have periods you may feel you, you know you may have an inner woman inside of you that really wants to come out and oh my gosh I, I, it's so anyway in light of all of that I don't want to get off on a tangent, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's not on. A, it's not a tangent. It's exactly yeah. right. It's exactly right on topic. Yeah. So we. Yeah. So I got a little Facebook group, and I have a. I have another group of four guys that 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 came together. The there's three of us. Well, there's four of us total. So three in addition to me, we came together through social media. From, I mean, we're all over the place. Uh, we're in every single time zone in North America. One of them is in Canada. Uh, one in Montana, I'm down in Texas, one in Michigan, I think. And, um, and, and we connected and we just started getting together on, on Zoom initially. Then we started doing just daily uh, recordings. We're, we're, we're sharing things on Boxer, you know, just as a means to, you know, whatever. And, it, and this thing has turned into like a men's, it's turned into a little disciple group. Just four guys, and never in my life have I had as real, raw conversations with other men about real issues. Typically, when men get, get together and they're drinking a beer, they're talking about sports, guns, or women. And, right. you know, and, and, uh, and if it's not, and if they're not talking about one of those three subjects, they're not talking. And we're diving into, you know, Bible issues. We're driving in, diving into relationship. Each, I mean, we're sharing our dirty laundry. And this is what I'm, this is what I got going on with my wife right now. Hmm. This is where we're an area where we're struggling. And one guy will come up and man, I've been there and I have found. So there's a context of trust. Yeah. With the guys. How did you, how do you establish the trust? Um, if we could figure out that. And, yes. and, 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 and you uh, could franchise it market like that as a pill, <laughs> man, <laughs> you could, you could franchise it like McDonald's and heal America. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it happened. Yeah. Well, maybe we, there's we, not a formula. First, there was a couple of, of, of Facebook groups that we were kind of connect. We had a little bit of cross pollination between a couple of Facebook groups, but then we just started doing, we started doing um, a few, conversations with just the four of us and somebody said we need to do a zoom and so the four of us got together and did a zoom connection we recorded it then edited it and then uploaded it into you know my face you know nation of champions is the name of my facebook group so we we record we uploaded it into noc and um and then it was just went so well and everybody loved it so much. We said, we need to do another one. And it, as we did several of these, the trust began to develop. But I think what took it to the kind of the next level is when we got off the Zoom 
into in discussions that we knew were going to get posted on on social media and we got into the Voxer group where we were having okay this is a private conversation between the four of us and it doesn't leave the circle of this four and we started having conversations in that format and are then, they are they written out conversations no. No, these oh, are just okay. these are just recordings, just for oh, ease okay. of of you know quick being able to you know blurt them out. But that and then and it what it what it uh, evolved into is uh, we're talking back and forth, giving these recordings on on Boxer every single day, and we're talking about deep, you know, significant hard issues and we're just sharing life in a way that I've never seen men do before and that we're going to and since this stuff is recorded how wow. we can replicate this how we can how we can set up something to get yeah. other guys and I don't know how we're going to do it yet I don't you know because this there's got to be the chemistry there's got to be the trust right. you're That's not right. going to go deep well, yeah. And if it's recorded, that's a whole other level of what can you do with that recording? And right, right, right. So you really have to trust these people. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's really cool. David, um, there was another one more question I had for you. Crap. What was it? Doggone it. Okay. Nation of Champions. That's your Facebook group. Yeah. Well, that's maybe I am done with my questions. Is there anything you wanted to add? You know, the only other thing that I got going on that I'm like, that all of this stuff is what really super excites me. However, I got to say, I am also very excited and intrigued that um, I got connected with some people that have shown me how to. Um, get involved in the gold and silver invest, investment as a way to hedge against potential economic downturn that I think everybody in the world sees is already happening. You're not in Bitcoin or whatever that is? Yeah, diversify, get into some real money, not this fiat currency. The dollar is hasn't been backed by gold for since 70-something or other. And... Um, it's plummeting. Inflation is skyrocketing. The national debt is beyond my ability to even comprehend. And where do you, where do you put your gold? Is it in those books behind you? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, most of it. When when I, uh, I'm, I I'm in a an organization and a company that has their own private vault. Oh, okay. So when well, I, how do you get to it? How do you make sure you can get to it if you want to sell it? Um, they've got they've got uh, a digital wallet that you can transact and transfer things right from that. You can have it shipped to you, but they can if if you're wanting to convert it to currency to sell or to purchase, you can do that um, digitally um, right through their right through their wallet. But the other thing that's kind of so there's a defensive strategy to gold and silver, turning some of your savings transferring or rolling over some of your 401ks or IRAs to gold back 401ks where the money just won't disappear if the bottom falls out of the economy. Right. Um, 
but there's an offensive strategy in an area that I've never thought I would get interested in, and that's collectible coins. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just not, I, I would never have dreamed, I would never have seen that coming. And uh, so got involved in that and, and, uh, and just sharing people, you know, just sharing that with people and helping them kind of make educated decisions about how to better protect. The yeah, they already yeah. Have. yeah. And there's a lot to learn on that stuff. Yeah. Uh, go to go to any pawn shop and you'll figure out very quickly that it's interesting to, to see if you know more or less than the guy behind the counter on <laughs> whatever you're looking at. I always feel yeah. like I know a lot less. Yeah. So I'm a, well, I'm a, I just sounded like Donald Trump. I always feel like I know a lot less than the other guy, but um, yeah, that's cool. That makes sense. Sounds kind of fun to get. So it sounds like you have to learn a lot. Yeah, there is. There's a there's a pretty steep learning curve. They've got uh, yeah. they've got a lot of educational material, and there's a lot of education. You know, YouTube has become a place where you can right discover some real gems on YouTube. Yeah, and um, some well, of the some people some people are going to discover this gem right here. You on YouTube because <laughs> this is going up on YouTube, David. Yeah, we'll D- see. David, I know what I was going to ask you. Uh, I found the question. What, sorry, it was so long ago. You said you carried a gun. What kind of gun do you carry? You don't have to answer it if you don't want to, obviously. Oh, yeah, no. Um, I, uh, I've been through a lot over, over, you know, so I'm 61. I'll be 62 this year. And I started at 25 when, when I got my first job in law enforcement. Prior to going into putting myself through the police academy, um, mm. I had never fired a handgun before in my life. Really? Uh, no oh kidding. yeah. Uh, so did you I go to college? To, I, yeah. Did you go to college? Oh, where'd you go to college? Fresno State. Fresno State. Did you play football there? I did. I did. I played. Did you ever play against a guy named Gerald? Uh, Gerald, Gerald Wilhite. You did. Gerald Wilhite. <laughs> yes. I saw your post where his daughter gave you yeah. that thank you uh, card, uh-huh. and then a commemorative nfl card this is when my dad played in football i saw that post and i saw gerald i saw his name gerald wilhite and i went i know that guy yeah I played that guy and so you remember him number two that's funny mostly i just watched him run away from me because he was super good yeah i mean obviously he was a tailback for the denver broncos for about six or seven years he was one of my favorite players when i was a little kid because and he was easy to remember because he would do a backflip in the end zone if he got a a, a touchdown. Yep. He must have done enough, got enough touchdowns where I saw quite a few of those backflips. And there's a there's a YouTube channel where you can see a bunch of them for yeah. him doing. Yeah. But so I I had these girls, these two black girls were they were twins. Were in my uh, Los Angeles Loyola Marymount class uh, about. 12 years ago, I guess now, something like that. And the last time, last name, Wilhite. So I said, any relation to Gerald Wilhite? And I thought, yeah, they're just going to, who's that? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, he's our dad. I said, wow. number 47 of the Denver Broncos. And they're like, yeah. And so, yeah. So, I, but, and then it wasn't even that same semester. They gave me that they, they forgot to give me that. But before they graduated, they tracked me down and gave make sure they gave me that card. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, that is. Yeah, cool. I remember your comment on that. I was like, oh wait, hold on. 
you played football that's cool yeah so so um yeah but you but never I, shot a handgun but you you played football so uh you know i had to buy a gun to go in the police academy because i was putting myself through as a non-sponsored cadet so i just bought whatever you know the police department and the sheriff's department were using as their duty gun back in those days it was a smith and wesson 459 nine millimeter so i owned that for a while um when i got my first job in in san clemente pd is where i got my first job i was there for like two years really and they made me carry a, a 357 Magnum for a while. I hated it because I wasn't a wheel gun guy. I was a I was a semi-auto guy. But shortly thereafter, they went to the first version of the Smith and Wesson 645. So a big, heavy 45 caliber semi-auto. Um, I left to Fresno PD. We carried the same gun for a while. Then Fresno PD went to Beretta's to Beretta 40s. Um, I wasn't a big fan of Beretta. They're a, they're a great gun. There's nothing wrong with with the Berettas, you know, the 92 series. Um, it just wasn't it, personal preference. Uh, yeah. w- w- wasn't my my ideal. Um, Do you have big hands? I'm just curious. You play. I, did, I have kind of medium hands. Just oh, okay. Medium. Yeah. Um, they're wide, but my fingers aren't long, which handgun wise now makes me rotate my grip position so i can get enough meat on the trigger yeah you know to to pull it in a controlled fashion so i really Mm got to make up for that with my support hand placement so that the gun doesn't recoil in an odd um, yeah yeah configuration currently i i hated glocks when they first came out um uh, I boohooed him like crazy until I shot one for the first time and I became an instant fan. Um, <laughs> I, I, I still own a Glock. Um, I have a SIG. Uh, let's see, 226 uh, single action only. I'm, I'm, I'm a really? big wow. fan of 1911s. And, um, but I don't own a 1911, but I love the I love that. I love single action. I love the way the safety works. Um, you know, it's more intuitive to me. And, uh, and my wife surprised me. This is one of the greatest presents she's ever given me in our whole marriage. She surprised me about three years ago on my birthday. With um, a single cons- action. Yeah. And conspired with my, our oldest son on what's dad's favorite gun. And I had talked to him about, you know, I was in love with this, this, this uh, P226 in single action only. And I, I he had gone to the Never range one day when I wasn't action. with him. And I said, you got it. They got one in the, in the store, dad. And I said, you got it. You got to pick it up and ask him if you can dry fire it. And so he did. And I said, tell me if that wasn't sweet. And he goes, Oh, it was amazing. Was so this anyway, a nine millimeter? That's a nine. Yeah. And so what's, does the safety on it, is it mer- meant to be carried like a 1911, like cocked and locked? Yes. So the safety blocks the the slide from, or what, how's the safety work? Um, it, uh, is it a thumb safety where you yes, thumb safety. Flip, flip it up? Oh yeah. So, but some, it's not a 1911. It's not a 1911. They took, they took what their, their, their regular 226, which is one of their, you know, like signature right. guns. It's yeah. Sig- yeah. Yeah. 
most famous for. But that doesn't have a safety on it. Though, no, no, it doesn't. It has a slide release and a and an internal decock. You know, right? Yeah, deal. the decocker. Yeah. But they configured and put one on this that is single meant to be cock carried, cocked and locked with the same thumb safety up. Yeah. For and, for safe. Yeah. And you engage by bringing the thumb down and then pull the trigger, just like a 1911. Yeah. But there's no grip safety on it, though, the secondary nope. safety? Nope. Oh, it's nope. interesting. I'll take a look at that. It's obviously yeah. not on the California handgun roster, so we no, can't. It's, not. it's too it, dangerous for us. It, yeah, it's too dangerous because I think their standard magazine capacity is probably in the 17-round range, <clears throat> 15 or 17. Yeah. Um, I recently got a uh, Shadow Systems. Uh, uh, this is a new company that's out there. Um, it's not a it's it's modeled after a Glock. Looks a lot like a Glock. It's a it's a polymer gun, you know, just similar to a Glock. But uh, but I've mounted a uh, a red dot on this because my eyes are are kind of old, and it's really hard for me to to get the front sight in focus. Uh huh. Just because I was a sniper on the SWAT team, it's really important that I be able to hit little tiny targets, and I can't get over that mentality. Even yeah. though defensive shooting isn't about hitting targets, it's hitting rapidly. It's something more like this size. You can do that. You're yeah, going to yeah. win. You're going to be more likely to win a gunfight. But I can't get. And I know that you know in that kind of a scenario, that's the that's the kind of you know downrange you know the uh, firing that i'm going to do but i have to be able to or else i won't like the gun hit a very precise you know just i'm looking for like maximum marksmanship right so because of my old eyes that can't i can't focus on that front sight unless i lift my eye my head up and look through the very bottom of my glasses that are corrected for that distance and that's a terrible shooting position it's not tactical you know, it's right. not. So I shot a red dot for the first time and absolutely fell in love with it. Oh, cool. So I've got a. What, what is that? What's that rig uh, run? You think <laughs> you don't have to say, obviously, the, but yeah, you know, the, the shadow system with, yeah. with the red dot um, I yeah. got for about it was 11 or 1200 with okay. with the site. Cool. Yeah, I wish I wish guns. And that's and, a nine millimeter as well. And that's a and that's a nine millimeter as well. Okay, there's a wheel gun out there, guy. There's a wheel gun guy. He's gonna kill me if I don't ask you what your 357 that you carried was. What was uh, it? Because I like 357s. Yeah, no, it was a beautiful. It was an amazing gun. It was a Smith and Wesson 686. So it was a five inch stain a barrel stainless yep. steel 357. It was a beautiful gun. Um, San Clemente now is contracts with the Orange County. Orange County Sheriff. Sheriff that's right. Yeah. So that's right. they used to have a PD. Yeah, they used to have a PD. And I got hired in '85. I left a Fresno PD in '87, '88. That sounds like right about when everybody was going to semi-autos. Yes. Does that sound about right? Precise, okay. Precisely. Okay. Did everybody pick the Berettas, or did some people go to 1911s, or how did that work? Or six? Sure. Actually, you said Smith and Wesson was the first one, right? Smith and Wesson was the first semi-auto. Yes. Oh yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Six forty-five, and that was a that was a good gun, and I love the forty-five caliber. I love that round. Um, but yeah. 
the and and back in the 80s when when military submachine guns were all nine millimeters and that was the craze the hk mp5s and you know you, yeah all that kind of stuff they tried doing nine millimeters and handguns because you could get so many more rounds in one right. magazine right and but the ballistics of the nine millimeter in the eighties was that was inferior and they were, they weren't stopping people very well and everybody boohooed the nine millimeter, but they, over the years, they kind of made some improvements in, in ballistics of, of that nine millimeter round. And yeah. I'm a big, I'm a big fan that it's not the size that's going to the size of the bullet or the, the, you know, <laughs> I'm glad you add of the bullet to that. Sorry to get a little male humor in there. It's not the size of the bullet that's going to um, put somebody down. It's your ability to hit what you're shooting at. It's shot placement. And the nine millimeter is more than enough. If you, if you, if you can place your rounds center mass quickly and effectively, it's it's more than enough to to stop a threat. What do you think about um, proposals to limit magazine capacity to ten rounds? I can't. It makes me want to puke on my shoes. I hate it. Um, it 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 just there's no there's, it makes no sense to me. Um, what do you what do you carry uh, now? Do you carry the shadow systems now? Yeah, I carry the shadow um, with. Do you uh, carry an extra mag? I will carry an extra mag and my extra mag is a 21 rounder. I'll carry a 15. 15 and then 20. So you got 16 and then 20. I got a 20 or 20. Yeah, I think it's 20, but I have the same thing for my SIG. Um, You know, if I carry an extra mag and if I need an extra mag, I want as many rounds as I can get in that one mag without, you know, I know you can do, you know, Glock makes mag, you know, like 35 round magazines that you can stick in the bottom of the Glock and you've got a magazine sticking out a foot below it. I'm not into that. That's going to impede your ability to move and, and operate that gun. I'm not, I'm not that crazy. So on the magazine capacity uh, thing that people, for some reason, there's a certain mentality that, that just, that, that makes them feel like they're doing so much to fight crime. Um to me, it's like a bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. is over there trying to imagine all the scenarios in which you, quote unquote, need a defensive weapon. And in their mind, they're sitting in their office there in D.C. They think, uh, yeah, 11, you'll never need that. Only a criminal will need that. <laughs> I, where do they come up with this? Where do they come up with 11? I don't know. I, I, you know? I don't. I don't get it. Does that does that strike you as as odd as it strikes me? Yes, yes. It, it, the their their arguments to me are nonsensical. Um, I just don't view the world through the same glasses that a lot of these people do, and it just either. doesn't make sense. I don't think the word "need" is, has any basis in any of these laws anyway, because how can you possibly tell me what my need is ahead of time? You only know what the need is after it happened. And then you're like, oh, it looks like, oh, I guess there you did need 11. I'm, so, I'm sorry for making you a criminal. <laughs> Idiots. Anyway, well, David, um, we've been going for two, almost two and a half hours. And uh, we are so, 
so grateful for all your time and sharing all this stuff. And I uh, hope that uh, you don't have any bad dreams sharing the stuff that you mentioned about kids and about crime scenes and stuff. But we, we so appreciate you coming on and sharing your vast and rich experience with us and uh, also helping us feel like maybe we can be vulnerable with other men yeah um you know it was fun and, and and i think that yeah some of sharing some of this stuff you know i wouldn't even call it hard i think it's just necessary and i think it's necessary to, to even in the right setting to be okay talking about things that happened way back when i think it's nothing but it's nothing but healthy and if you find yourself sharing it and you're having a hard time dealing with sharing it, that is a clear sign that you've got some, that there's something going on inside that you need either some healing or some processing because you're holding in some of that ick that you need to be able to just, just get out. If sharing it causes you stress, that's a good, I think, sign that you got some processing to do and probably need some help doing that because who knows how to do this all by yourself none of us do we don't who in the world could have come up with you know the the what the emdr stuff and get the outcome that you get from the aftermath of emdr who in the world could have done that just by you know i'm just gonna i'm just gonna think about it and kind of work it out on my own no no yeah never happened right how many tattoos do you have? Last question. Um, <laughs> For those I'm... listening, only the, the only there's some people that are only listening, so they can't see you. Okay, so this arm I have a sleeve, and I've got I've got an eagle up here with a sword that relates to uh, you know the passage in Isaiah about rise up on wings of eagles and run and not go really weary, walk and not right. faint. I have two pillars coming down here that kind of represent the two pillars of the of the Jerusalem temple, the second temple period. I've got some stuff that match some tattoos of my wife that kind of represents the Rose of Sharon, which is a, was another name for Jesus. And then half of that verse from Isaiah is here. This one I got is the shield with the um, with the cross. Um, the uh, Maltese cross from um, there's a, there's a, Rick can you Joyner. show it? Can you show any part of it? Oh. Right there. Okay. Yeah. Cross and the, the, the so this is not like white supremacist stuff. Just FYI. Oh, this was a group of knights. Some people think tattoo police officer. Oh, you're a white supremacist. Yeah, yeah. We we now back when I was a cop, you couldn't have tattoos, so none of this was on me back then. Gotcha. Yeah, um, but there's a there's a really cool story about uh, these Knights of Malta during the uh, during a, like a three hundred year period during the crusade or crusades, which was a hideous period of time in in our history, but. They defended this island in several fortresses with underground tunnels against hideous uh, uh, attacks of, of 
well outnumbered. And these knights, these are old fashioned, you know, like knights who lived by a code of chivalry that they took very serious. This, this group uh, were the first people that create that kind of invented or started to create hospitals where people would go and they would be ministered to back to health. And part of this knight's job, not just learn how to duel and fight and sword play and you know arrows and all the tactical stuff of the day, but they were required to spend shifts as wards in hospitals, cleaning up bedpans and 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 sweeping floors and mopping up blood. They were very service oriented, um, and it was just part of the persona. And it's a really cool story. And I went, yeah, I think that that kind of speaks to what a guy is supposed to be. We are supposed to be protectors and providers, and there's that that side of us. But we're also supposed to love. We're called to love like the guy that loved like no other. We're called to love like Jesus. Woo, how much do we get that wrong? Because we're pouring all our energy into how, how to be a better protector. You need the you need the balance of both, and these and these guys, the Knights of Malta, kind of represented that. Hmm. So that's that's what's going behind. And this one on this arm, that's a bow, and my that's wife cool. has an arrow on the a same bow. So I have that's the bow; cool. she has the arrow. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for. When do you ship out for your next thing? Two days. Okay, um, so you got EMDR tomorrow. I, on, on Thursday, I drive to Louisiana. We'll spend the night in New Orleans. They'll shuttle us down to. Do you take helicopter. your gun with you on the rig? No, no, they won't let you. Really? They won't let They're you. worried that you're going to take it over and like hold up yeah, oil. Our, yeah, they got we, they got some weird rules and prohibitions, and you know, but it is. Is what there it is, so. is there any? Okay, cool. Yeah, I've never talked is. to anybody that worked on an oil rig, so this is a first time for me. So yeah. that was cool. You you know yes. a lot about a lot of stuff. That's really cool. And you don't look a well, day over 60. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean your age your my aging, body feel like it. You are aging well. You got a great smile <laughs> and you look like a very warm man. So I'm happy to know you. David yeah, McCreary I, yeah. is your name. Yes, sir. Thank is there a way that people time. could is there it. a way people could reach out to you if you by email or anything if they, they heard your story and they want to ask for help? You know, I'll, uh, I'll I I can forward that to you. I don't is this something that you can that you well I can put it in the notes. Yeah, I can post it. Yeah, yeah. In, in a written form, yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll send you away and maybe we can show them where the where the Facebook group is if people I, are interested in that. I will I will post and link any of the stuff you want on YouTube so people can read it and click on it if they want to get a hold of you. Sure. Sure. Okay. I'll uh, I'll text you with all of that when when we're done. That sounds great. Yeah. Okay. Right. Sounds good. Thanks David for coming on. Hey, thank you Lucas. It was uh, it was my pleasure.